Welcome back, everybody. So uh, now time for Q&A session. And uh, after the meal is generally understood to be a good time for that. And um, so you can feel free to ask any questions. We'll see how long it goes for, whether it's 45 minutes or slightly longer. We'll play it by ear and we'll do some more meditation after that or, or see where that leads us to. Yeah, there was a so question about uh, what I mentioned earlier, the uh, the end of our Thanksgiving retreat, people, people asking about how to take the practice into daily life. Uh, one is having to think about Dhamma all the time. That's one, one thing. And two is uh, if you have any Dhamma teachers who you like, just any situation that arises that's difficult and you don't know what to do, just ask yourself, what would they do in this situation? And then, uh, then you can find more. And we also, we also talk a lot about letting go. We also talk a lot about letting go in daily life, but it's not really clear for me. It was never really clear. What is letting go? Uh, so I've thought a lot about what is, what is this letting go that they're talking about all the time? Because, you know, you, that's like the worst thing when your friend says, just let go, or, you know, just, and that that's, then it's even harder to let go. Just be mindful, just let go. And, uh, but, uh, or just be happy. That's, that's my favorite or my least favorite. However you like to look at it. Um, just choose to be happy. Um but letting go is skillful response. So we learn how to skillfully respond to any situation. So it's uh, that comes from thinking about Dhamma often and uh, learning how to, it's almost, I think of practice almost like Qigong, like an internal Qigong where things are coming at us in our daily life and we're having to navigate different situations and the better we are with the practice, then the better we are, we're going to be with navigating all sorts of situations that arise for us, all sorts of curveballs that get thrown to us in our lives, things we don't expect, or, or we might even make this determination that, okay, today, no matter what happens, I'm going to let go. And then inevitably the thing that we can't let go of ends up happening on that day. So, so we just have to develop this sense of skillful response, skillful, skillfully responding to every situation that arises. That's the answer right now. Anyway, maybe it'll get asked again later. This just floated out in my, um, meditation <laughs> um the the uh, phrase is beautiful in the beginning beautiful in the middle beautiful in the end and then i realized i don't really know what that's referring to and why that's why that's even said other than beautiful is the dhamma yeah the dhamma practice so the progression of practice like you might you'll you benefit in the beginning and then the middle there's benefit and in the end there's benefit. So it's uh, 
it's like we had this uh there was actually somebody who quite a long time ago uh must have been at least 15 years ago yeah 17 years ago uh there was a uh, Anagarka at a bike area and, and it, things just didn't work out for him there and he pulled a runner is what we call when you just leave suddenly and uh so uh we just wanted to make sure he was okay so we were calling his family he went back you know called his mother and just to make sure things were okay and and um his mother said well he doesn't want to talk to you, but he just wants to pass a message message on to you. He wants to say, it was really, really good in the beginning, and it was really, really bad in the end. So I thought that's uh, not the qualities we're talking about in terms of beautiful in the beginning, beautiful in the middle, beautiful in the end. So uh, we want it. It's like the, the Dhamma teachings are applicable in the beginning, middle, and end. The Four Noble Truths are applicable in the beginning, in the middle, in the end. And the reflections that we do the on the five khandas or on just the different ways the Buddha talked about the body and mind, those reflections are valid every step of the way. It's like that reflection of, um, I think it's somebody asking Venerable Sariputta, then uh, what's, the, what's the contemplation that you should be doing in your practice? And Sariputta says, reflecting on the five khandas, the five aggregates, form, feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness as impermanent and not self. And then the person says, well, what about a stream enterer who's reached the first level of awakening? What should they be reflecting on? And his answer is the same. They should be reflecting on the five khandas as impermanent and not self. And then what's the reflection for a once returner? answer is the same for a non-returner the answer is the same and then he says well what should the reflection of an arhant be someone who's fully awakened and Sariputta says yeah they just reflect on the five khandas the five aggregates as impermanent and not self and uh so they say well doesn't an arhant have nothing left to do and then he says well yes that's true but they naturally reflect on them that way just because that's the way it is. And also when they reflect on the five khandas in that way, their mind has a pleasant abiding here and now. And it just leads to mindfulness and awareness, which is a pleasant abiding here and now. So it's that's kind of a beautiful in the beginning, beautiful in the middle, beautiful in the end. That uh, Or these reflections, it's not that there's a necessarily a teaching for beginners or a teaching for the intermediate or a teaching for the advanced, every teaching is valid up until the end. And, and even with, if you're just starting out, something considered an advanced teaching might be something that really affects you in the beginning, or, or your mind might be more, more ready for it, more ready for some more profound teachings in the beginning. And, uh, or you might be a longtime practitioner and you just have to go back to the basics just have to rem remind yourself of those basic breath meditation techniques. And that happens a lot too. That's uh, 
was thinking that might be the theme for our winter retreat was going to be back to the basics. Um, Uh, how do you reflect on death? It hurts me in my meditation that it could be a bummer to reflect on death or I mean, I'm not talking about like, you know, reflecting on the icky parts of the body and all that stuff, but death is it, there's probably something to it in terms of being beneficial. Yeah, there is something to it uh, in terms of being beneficial. Yeah, it's we don't we don't want to reflect on death. the The intention is to is not to make people depressed. So, if reflecting on death is making the mind depressed, then it's good to come back to things like metta and these nice reflections that the Buddha had. Death is one way of reflecting on impermanence. So if, uh, if we're, we find we're not able to reflect on that or, or we only are able to reflect on it sometimes. So I know one time when I was living at Daodam in Thailand, I was getting really into death reflection. And I was reflecting on this teaching where the Buddha said that he was asking the monks, how do you reflect on death? One group of monks said, well, I reflect, yeah, I could die next year. And the Buddha says, well, that's that's not good enough. And so then the next group says, well, I reflect on death, I could die next month. And the Buddha says, well, that's that's not still that's still considered being heedless. And another person says, well, I reflect on death, I could die next week, I could die tomorrow. And the Buddha says, well, that's still not quite good enough. And uh then there's one monk that says, well, I reflect on death that I could I could die in the span that it takes me to chew and swallow a morsel of food. And the Buddha says, okay, that's that's pretty good. And then and then another monk says, I reflect that if I breathe in, I might not breathe out. Or if I breathe out, I might not breathe in. And the Buddha says, okay, that's those last two are are pretty good. And uh, everybody else is said to be heedless with regard to their death contemplation. So I thought, well, what does that mean? Are we just supposed to be thinking about death all the time? Um, and so I remember doing walking meditation and trying to figure out how could I be following that teaching by thinking about death constantly and all the time. And I, I imagined death as like a black bulb in my, behind my head that was about to strike me down at any second. And it got a little bit tense. And <laughs> actually quite tense. And I couldn't do it for that long. And uh, it's kind of, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> And uh, that's actually not what the Buddha is talking about. Um, so uh, we don't need to be thinking about death all the time. But just to remind ourselves from time to time, that's how fast it could happen. So when we do think about death, we think about realistically, scientifically, that is how fast death can happen. You know, people, when I was in Thailand, I remember in the village, 
hear, hearing about a guy in the village who just died while he was eating lunch. He just suddenly, his face just plopped into his food and he died just very suddenly, had a stroke or something. And people can have an aneurysm and die very suddenly. And so, or you can get hit by a train and die very suddenly, or there's just things that can happen where you die very suddenly. And so that is that span of time the Buddha is talking about that is very realistic. So it's not that we need to be thinking about it every second, but just reminding ourselves that it can happen that fast anytime. No, I, I mean, I actually just saw a, a semi um, over into the, next to the water. I saw that too, yeah. That? Yeah, yeah. I mean, but uh, but that, that's a serious question. Like, so, and what's been coming up for me is, so that is the answer to the question. That's going to happen. It could happen any minute. And so what? Yeah, that, that's the answer. So so what? So what all these things I'm giving importance to? Like they were, I thought they were so important. And so what's the big deal? So, so yeah, any, yeah. So anything uh, like that's what the death contemplation is for. It's just to have that sense of no problem, no worries. And uh, that, you know, we're giving some, there might be some small thing that we think is super important or that is coming up in our future that we think is maybe really, really important. And, and then the, it's like, well, well, what's the big deal? You know, if, if I was to just get, get hit by a truck and every, it was all over, what's, was that so important? Was that what's really important? So uh, the Buddha does give a lot of importance to, abiding in that state of no problem no worries in the moment and death contemplation can really lead to that or if we do the death contemplation sometimes it might bring up what we need to be dealing with actually like what's really important so death contemplation has that function of bringing that up so we might be thinking a lot about oh you know i need to i need to like uh you know, get this thing for dinner tonight. It's super important. And then, and then we think about death contemplation and then what, what might come up is like, Oh, I need to patch things up with my kid or I need to something important that needs to be dealt with. I need to, I need to harmonize with this person or I need to, uh, yeah. What's really important is, is going to start coming up. Like, is that, and I've been really deeply reading Ajahn Chah lately. He's, so he's affecting my mind a lot. And it seems to be it's about the next moment being reborn. That is one way to think about rebirth and, and a valid way to think about it. Uh, the Buddha did talk about death contemplation in terms of rebirth as well. Like what type of rebirth would we take if the bodies were if the body was to die what kind of mind state do we want to be in so we want to be in a not in a mind state of worry and stress and we want to be in a positive mind state when we die and because we could die anytime by extension we want to be in a positive mind state as much as possible so uh so it does you know for those of us who uh, don't want to or aren't able to take on that idea of rebirth in terms of reincarnation or the possibility of 
transmigration into a um, a new body or having come from somewhere into this body in a you know the death of the body in those terms we can think of it in a momentary sense so if we have more of that sense well if we're uh, not able to think of not able to take on that idea of rebirth because we can't see our past lives and we don't we can't really fully or even partially take on the idea of future lives or or other planes of existence that we can't see that we could be reborn into then uh, at the very least we can try to be making the mind positive which is a pleasant abiding here and now it's much better than just being upset and irritated and <laughs> which is a negative which is suffering here and now if we take a look at it yeah. being being irritated annoyed frustrated is suffering here and now and uh, and then it helps us to think, well, what do I want my mind to be like at the time of death? And, and we have to create those habits now for whenever death does occur. And the other part of death contemplation is it will occur for sure at some point. So we don't have to have any doubt about that. But the delusion comes in and says, well, probably not soon. So... <laughs> probably have a you know a while to to go are we so uh <laughs> uh death well, there, yeah yeah we think it might be a while but it may be really soon yeah so we we know it will happen and we don't know when so those those two aspects and we don't know how also even if we get things like divinations or uh, our astrology chart might say certain things. I know there was, um, and they do this in a lot of temples in Thailand where they do divinations and astrological readings. And uh, there was uh, the woman who looks after the kitchen at Pujam Gom, where I was living for two and a half years in Thailand in uh she said she she was she would ask about death because she was told she was going to have a short life. So uh, I said, well, who told you that? And she said, well, it was the monk at the village temple. And I said, how did he decide you were going to have a short life? And she said, he took a flower and he threw it on the floor. And how the petals spread out, he sort of read the pattern. And that told him that she was going to have a short life. So I said, well, it's just not sure. <laughs> So, you know, maybe, but uh, it's it's not sure. You don't have to, like, lock yourself into that. Yeah, you don't, you, if the death contemplation is getting too intense, you have to temper it with other, re other reflections. So uh, one way to temper the death contemplation is with metta, with goodwill toward oneself and others. So... Um, the death contemplation is something it has particular benefits, cutting off thoughts of past and future, uh, reminding us of what's really important. It has those benefits. But if you're, you know, not everybody's going to be ready to really go into it in a very intense way. Death, again, death is just one way to contemplate impermanence. So we can contemplate impermanence without thinking death, death, death we can actually think about impermanence and the insight into impermanence, just the, that all conditions 
arise and pass away. We can think about it that way. All conditions of body and mind arise and pass away. There's nothing worth clinging to, nothing that we can actually hold on to. Whether I cling to it or not, it's going to arise and pass away according to its own nature. Because the clinging is we we try to hold on to that which is good and nice and pleasant, and we tr we try to push away that which is unpleasant and negative. And to a certain extent, maybe we have to do that a little bit to just have a to look after things and be responsible people. But on an in an ultimate sense, say if we talk about just basic things that happen with the body, like when the body is healthy. We might want to cling to that, but then when it changes, we suffer because we thought, oh, I would just be healthy for, maybe I would be healthy and then just die. And then it'd be, and then that'd be great. Uh, it's like the story of uh, when I was going to go to Ladakh in 2010, I was reading up about Ladakhi people and I was uh, taken by this image of thinking, oh, that's how I'd like to die. Like this, uh, this old man who's in his eighties, and just how everybody would help out. They have a they have an eight month winter and a four month period where they can do their building and their repairs on their their homes, replace the roofs or do whatever maintenance needs to be done. And so that's this four month maintenance period, and everybody's helping out. And there's the kids helping out. There's the people of every age helping out and the elderly people helping out. So there's this old man in his eighties going up and down a ladder, helping replace a roof. And then he comes down the ladder after working for most of the day and just decides to take a tea break. And then he drinks a cup of tea and dies. And so I thought, Oh, that's a nice way to die. Just kind of going about my daily business and just, and just, uh, just die. So um, that's called dying in the saddle. That's <laughs> So, uh, and yeah, he probably had a good life and that was a good death as well, but we don't know how we're going to die. It's not necessarily going to be like that. It could be, we could get dementia and then die. And then our, we're going to be defaulting to habits that we've just built up over time. And, um, or we could, yeah, we don't know how it's going to happen. So coming back to that sense of what's really important and, uh, are you recommending I think it caught my ear was it reduces uh, thoughts of future and past, or maybe it does if you're lucky. I guess it does. Uh, it's not lucky. No, it's uh, you. You can reduce the. You can cut through the thoughts of past and future by that idea of death being very immediate. Then our plans for the future become will seem to be a little bit less important. It's not going to happen right away, but as as death becomes more immediate or we're living in the light of death, then as, as these things become more immediate for us, then thoughts of past and future, and not just any thoughts of past and future, but particularly worldly aspirations, like I want to be rich or I want to have a lot of status and fame, things like that are much less important in the light of death. Uh, and then thoughts of the past, like, brooding over and over again over some difficult interaction we had in the past and maybe when we wake up we're not thinking about it but then we we wake up and we're kind of fanning then we think we might be in a state of kind of emptiness when we wake up in the morning 
and then we slowly kind of build our world again and think, you know, oh wait, oh yeah, I'm supposed to be angry at that person. Oh yeah, yeah, this this and that happening, and we're kind of fanning the flames that were had become just smoldering embers, and then we're kind of fanning the flames of our the smoldering embers of our grudges and our our all the negative things in our life. We do that. That's our real morning puja. We're actually doing that every morning as a morning puja when we wake up. So you're not as likely to be fanning the flames of all those negativities that have been occurring throughout life or just the people you're estranged from kind of reminding yourself of what they did and why they don't deserve to be, why they don't deserve my kindness and and <laughs> sometimes too it's yeah death contemplation is a very good one because uh, even though we suffer over things it's hard to let go of that even though it is suffering because it's also there's a there's a sense of there's a sense of comfort in the known. So like knowing what's going to happen. So there's a sense of comfort in, in say, okay, I'm going to do this and this and this on my Google calendar. I've got, I've got these things happening and I know that's at least I know. So it's like, well, if I, I know I need to suffer over that situation or I need to experience this idea that I am this type of person who's suffering in this way. And at least, at least I know what that's like. So maybe non-suffering is unknown and there's a fear of the unknown. So it's going to be a, if we don't suffer, it's going to be a new experience, a new situation. So death contemplation can kind of push us into those experiences as well of uh, what is it like just to not have any problems what is it like to not suffer? What is it like to uh, not have any worries? What is it like for the mind to just be cool, clear, and calm? Uh, so sometimes we might think, well, that's pretty boring. That's not interesting. <laughs> but we have to try it out. We have to... So uh, something like death contemplation can, can lead to that. We, we, we always come across all these difficulties in practice, though, too. I mean, Lumpur Cha, would, he would talk about it and say that he practiced for so many years, and he would reflect that, why do I have to go through all this hard practice just to be at ease? But that is really what it takes, you know, just to be calm, just to be happy, just to be at ease. But really, we really do have to let go of a lot. We really do have to teach ourselves in these ways. We really do have to meditate over and over and over again just to be able to, just so the mind can be at ease, just so the mind can be cool. Yeah, otherwise, uh, the mind doesn't get trained to do that and it just follows its habits, which is then grabbing out whatever it can grab at and we, we will keep suffering, keep suffering. So it uh, we have to train ourselves over and over again with these these types of contemplations, these types of reflections. And then the mind can start to be at ease, but it's difficult. It's difficult to train the mind. The mind is, has habits that keep us in the cycle of suffering. 
one of those habits is ignoring the reality of death. So uh, hardwired to ignore that. So uh, so it's good to good to remind ourselves of it from time to time. Yes. Back. So how does one do a death contemplation? I mean, is it like a method that there's something you say or? <laughs> how does one do a death contemplation? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. Uh, there's different ways to do it. It depends kind of on what your mind is like. Some people have more verbal minds, like just we imagine words and other people have more visual minds. So if I do death contemplation, I will visualize myself as a corpse. That's that's like an object of meditation, actually. Um, or I will visualize uh, like loved ones, like visualize myself in the future at say at their funeral and how would I react or how would that be for me? Or you can actually do it as a verbal reflection, just a thought reflection and just think about the word death. What does that bring up for you? So we can say to ourselves, death, death. And then we, we say to ourselves, uh, death, there's two aspects. It's, inevitable that it will happen so it comes up as an analytical meditation it's a it's a consideration and it's going to the words are going to be a little bit different for everybody so we we consider and reflect that death is inevitable it will happen it's it's a certainty that it will happen to me and it is completely uncertain when it will happen and how it will happen so we say those things to ourselves and then whatever reflections that brings up, we, we just think about it and consider it. Um, there is a, a chant that we do in the, the different reflections on impermanence. So, so it would, it's on page 55 of the chanting book. That's the, I am of the nature to age. I have not gone beyond aging. I'm of the nature to sicken. I've not gone beyond sickness. I'm of the nature to die. I have not gone beyond dying. All that's mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. And then uh, after that is a reflection on karma. I'm the owner of my actions, heir to my actions, born of my actions, related to my actions, abide, supported by my actions. Actions is karma. Whatever karma, whatever actions I have done for good or for ill, of that I am the heir, of that I will be the heir. Uh, so a lot of these reflections, it's just a quick reminder also, reminding ourselves of it. And then if we have the quality of Dhamma Vichaya or thinking and considering Dhamma on a regular basis, then we train our mind to see death around us. So it's not just thinking about death but we train our mind to see it and we start to see it everywhere. We see it in the leaves at change of the seasons. We see it when uh, we consider, oh, uh, my friend just passed away and we we contemplate it, we consider it. Or, oh, I have uh, my uh, friend's mother has a terminal illness and we consider that. And we just bring it to mind and make it conscious. A lot of it is just making it conscious so there's not always a 
like one exact phrase that we'll teach to do death contemplation, but mostly the way Lumpur Cha would teach it would be just to consider it and bring it to mind from time to time, yeah. at least once a day. <laughs> Ideally three times a day. <laughs> I've been thinking about death a lot just because you know there's so much in the news and and um oh yeah they're just throwing it at us and you know I think with um governments have been changing and things like that and uh as a therapist I think that people uh, my clients and everybody seems to be an accelerated pace at accepting death you know because it's um scary for some people like my um lbgtq clients or my jewish clients or particular clients who are having to look, be a little bit more scared or they're feeling more afraid and, um and that's all you know part of you know i think everybody's on an accelerated pace as you recognize that but one of the things that i've been doing i heard this thing about like okay when the big earthquake hits the Pacific Northwest, and now there's going to be this toxic plume, you know. And I was ready for the earthquake, and now I'm like, I don't think I'm going to die in a toxic plume, you know. And uh, so I'm like trying to get ready for that one. So I don't think death as long as it's not in a yeah. toxic I don't want the tsunami, and I don't want the toxic plume. You know? So I'm like, Okay, well, I, I gotta prepare myself for this toxic film. I'm like, get in the car. I'm the first one out. I'm gonna head to the mountain. And I'm like, yeah, but my first plan was gonna stick around and help other people during the earthquake because I'm gonna survive the earthquake. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so it's it's interesting, like this thinking about um, now that we're talking about it. I think I'm mean, just the question might be in preparing to death. For death, do you prepare not to die too? Like I'm talking about, like I'm going to survival mode with this toxic bloom thing. Well, I mean, it, it doesn't mean that we try to speed up the process in any way. We do want to look after ourselves, and it certainly doesn't mean to take your own life, which is actually for us monks, it's against our precepts to commit suicide. So we don't want to speed the process up or just say that. Well, I'm just going to end it, be done with it, and then I'll. Uh, even the assisted death, the assisted suicide as as monastics were based on our precepts we're all, we almost have to be against it actually and uh, that uh, even then, even if you were to take your own life, you don't know how the experience is going to be. you don't know what's going to happen exactly or how it's going to play out. So uh, it is really the ultimate thing that's out of our control and that's why contemplating something like not self, not me, not mine, it's just following laws of nature that are out of my control is a really important reflection. And then the immediacy of death in terms of, uh, yeah, if there's more fear in society these days because of the nature of the news cycle or what's happening in the world or whatever, it's not that death is more likely. It, there, it, just because there's more fear doesn't mean death is more likely. It's just as likely as it ever was. People are still going according to their karma and people are still faring on according to causes and conditions. Um, I suppose there is a chance if everybody's more afraid that fear could cause some problems. Um, but uh, 
I don't know if that would, I, I don't think in my opinion, anyway, I don't think death is necessarily more. I don't think now is more of a dangerous time to live than 20 years ago. It's just, uh, it's just more people are, it's more on people's minds now. Uh, so there is, perhaps there is more fear. I don't know. It's really hard to quantify because there's a lot of people and uh, it's hard to know, hard to, hard to really quantify. Uh, but death, death is certainly a good thing to think about, but we don't want to think about it too much in terms of making ourselves more afraid. If, if death contemplation makes us more afraid, then we'd really need to go to these different contemplations. We could contemplate impermanence in a different way that, uh, that things change aging with contemplating aging is very useful. So if people don't contemplate aging, then as our bodies grow older and we lose our energy and we uh, lose, start losing our faculties and our strength, then it comes as a big shock because we were in one mode and then suddenly, well, what happened? And I can't do this or that thing that I like to do anymore. And I'm not as comfortable anymore. I'm losing my, uh, my memory is not as good. I'm losing my faculties. So contemplating aging is a way to contemplate impermanence. That's not death contemplation. So that's that's very important too because I know, and I think it it does come back to seeing it in our daily lives as well, not just in other people, but in just in nature. It's a it's a natural truth, and uh, with contemplation of aging i know because my my mom she's retired for four years now but she was a nurse and worked uh worked with worked on the psych unit in uh, kona community hospital in the big island of hawaii for the last 14 years and then before that was a nurse in california and in hawaii there's a lot of very athletic people and uh there was a case where um there was a guy who did triathlons and then he got to a point of being like in his 60s and became very depressed and so uh and then this same exact type of scenario uh there was somebody who came to a biogiri and um she had mentioned that her husband uh they'd been happily married for 34 years the kids the kids were grown up and he would do he was a super athletic guy teacher and got got into his early 60s and started losing some of his strength and just like everything he hadn't done contemplation of aging so things just completely fell apart and just ran off uh marriage was over it was a perfect marriage just they were a great couple and just suddenly it was just over and he ran off and uh couldn't be athletic anymore just there was no resources to deal with it with the aging process so um so contemplation if if death contemplation is leading to like a greater greater fear then there are other contemplations like contemplation of aging as well um so uh or contemplation of change even just change itself that oh the world is changing i don't like the way the world is going the world is changing and then so one contemplation on that is, well, even if it try to imagine like what's the worst it could become, what's the worst it could possibly become. And even if it does become that, it'll still change again after that. It's never static. It's not like, it's not like, oh, it's going to a fixed point in the future. It's actually always changing. There's a, 
I use the word arc of the story of a retreat, but there's an arc of the story of what's happening in the world as well. There's a really long arc and we don't know where that arc is going exactly. Um, so uh, just some thoughts anyway. There's another question. Let's, let's move. This conversation event makes me also think um, I mean, we are living in a giant station. And so it is a great deal of death, a lot of other things going on in us. And if we are just all part of the same living ground, you know, being, then it's as if parts of us are dying all the time. And there's an awareness, and is there an awareness of that? You know, you know, collective consciousness, and is it that we're running from the grief? Well, all this loss that it's hard to contemplate that, and how do we hold all that? Yeah, I think uh, there's another way to think of impermanence and death too that Ajahn Chah spoke of, and that's uh, in the not sure aspect. So it's not just that you know things, all things are impermanent, which is one way to say it. But Ajahn Chah, would, he would tend to not say all things are impermanent. He would say all things are not sure. And that's a different angle on impermanence because it brings in this idea of openness and open-mindedness as well. So like we might have a, a way that we think things are happening in the world. and uh, But then to add that little not sure caveat into it that, well, that just to be open at least a little bit to the possibility that things aren't quite happening in the way we think they're happening. So uh you know, because that's uh, a question like that assumes all sorts of truths that are actually not sure. And so, uh, so actually like, oh, we're living in a mass extinction right now. Not sure. Yeah, there is all sorts of things we're told and all sorts of things we see. And or it might, it may or may not be true. And um, so like, if, if you ask a question, like, if we're living in a mass extinction right now, how do we hold that? But I would come back to how the question is asked. And there's all sorts of assumptions in the question that we need to be questioning and, and need to maybe be a little bit more open to. And um, just to not, uh, yeah, because that can be very, things can be even more depressing than they already are. If we, <laughs> like, if we, uh, if we like grab onto just grab onto things in a certain way. So uh, we have one thing to come back to with death, con death contemplation too is, in the big scheme of things, our lives are very, very short also. So uh, yes, we do get affected by things all around us. And yes, maybe there is like a sense of, the Buddha didn't posit a collective consciousness, but uh, in terms of there is an interconnectedness, I think, in terms of the way everyone affects each other and the way, you know, I thought I was talking with a small group yesterday at Pacific Hermitage about uh, fishing and uh how probably a lot of people know about here know about this but this uh girl i think she's in hawaii she takes fish hooks out of shark mouths you guys know about that uh she she swims with sharks and she removes fish hooks from shark mouths and the sharks come up to her and open their like mako sharks and sharks with really sharp teeth and they open their mouths and she reaches in and because what happens is a lot of people go sport fishing and they, they'll catch a fish and just throw it back. And then a shark eats this fish and it gets the, 
the sharks, there's a lot of sharks with fish hooks stuck in their mouths. And so uh, apparently one time the way it started was she was swimming and she felt somehow drawn, very intuitive, intuitive person felt drawn to swimming with sharks. And uh, a shark came up to her and it, it uh, had a fish hook stuck like through its mouth. And she just decided to take a chance and went up to it slowly and kind of like took the hook out. And this shark like started circumambulating her and like like kind of rubbing up against her and stuff. And it was it was obviously grateful. And then another shark with a hook in it came up to her. And then all these, this like line of sharks started coming up to her with hooks in their mouths. And so she started making a practice of it. And now she has this huge ball of hooks that she's removed and she hasn't been bit a single time. So uh, what this shows me is on a on level of Dhamma, <laughs> what this shows me is our intentions actually do radiate out. And uh, when we have good intentions, then uh, you know people who might be able to benefit from those good intentions can, can come to us. And there's also, uh, I'm into these kind of animal psychics. Uh, there's this, this uh, lady who is uh, a well-known animal psychic. And uh, there was one year in Australia where a lot of surfers were being attacked by sharks and so somebody asked her well what's your what's your thing if you can communicate or you can have insight into what's going on here and she said well sharks the way they the way that sharks hunt is uh they have a, like a sensor and they sense agitation and the way they find fish is the fish is agitated it's, it's sending out an agitated energy and the fish is uh um, that's how it's drawn to it. So she said, when you have uh, surfers who have a certain attitude, like they're uh, competing with each other for waves, and especially if they're more aggressive, that the, you, it's almost always going to be happen that the more aggressive people are the ones who actually get bit because they're sending out that same type of energy and the sharks detect it and they're actually drawn to it. And um, so if you're calm and peaceful, then <laughs> you'll, be, you'll be okay probably be okay um but the uh it that goes with any mental states we cultivate whether so we can stop talking about death for now it's uh any mental states we <laughs> we cultivate whether it's meta very genuine goodwill people are going to be, be able to tell you know if somebody asks me you know what's your practice and i was to say meta I'm like I love Meta, and, and oh, he seems pretty upset, pretty angry. Every it's going to be obvious. Uh, or if somebody is upset, it's like, oh, what? Oh, I felt. Oh, what's their problem? You can just you don't need to talk to them. You can just feel it, because there is that kind of interconnected vibrational energy. So, uh, so we can reflect on that in terms of what kind of what kinds of mental states do we want to be cultivating ourselves? What uh, what do we want to be sending out into the world? So, uh, and uh, one of the one of the difficult things about, say, like looking at the news or or contemplating these these wars that are happening in the world and how awful everything is, then um, one of the difficult things is our our visceral righteous reaction to that will be like usually I don't know, a very normal reaction would be righteous anger or upset. But then if we're putting that type of vibrational level out into the world, that's actually not helping because uh, 
in a way, we're just adding to the same type of energy that we don't want to see. So, uh, so to really step back, take a deep breath, say, what do, what do I want to really put out into the world? Or there's this, uh, I remember reading a book a while back of uh, great acts of kindness. It was something about short stories about great acts of kindness in the world. And it was a, a man who was, his entire family was in, uh, imprisoned in Auschwitz. Uh, and um, this man saw his wife and children killed in front of him. And uh, he had this quick process that happened. And it, it was like he decided in that moment, I could either go completely into darkness right now, or I could go completely into light. And he decided to go completely into light and love in that moment. And he ended up surviving the whole World War II period and, and surviving the entire that entire era because he actually uh, um, he actually decided to just be like, okay, I'm just going to react to this the worst possible thing a person almost a person could experience their family being exterminated in front of them and go completely into love. And I don't want to have anything to do with that type of energy at all ever. So he ended up, uh, you know, people being ended up being drawn to him and he just helped everybody he could. And because of that, because of his, that type of energy, he ended up surviving that entire period. But so it's like the, probably a very difficult way to react to something like that, but also the, probably the best, the most wholesome thing we could do. So, so you had a question too. You had mentioned just mentioned the news and seeing the wars and things like that. And that the question we just had this morning, but I have several family members who are, that I in close contact with when I visit them. They regularly have the TV on gravitate towards shows about murder, political strife, the, you know, the news, where I have a tendency to just want to drift away and just leave that to them. But there's also a kind of a criticism of what's sticking your head in the sand. I mean, is there value in sitting and watching it to be more aware of it? Uh... I think if it's fictional shows, I, I, yeah, I don't think it's that helpful. Like, I don't, I really don't like horror movies. Like, uh, I never, I never uh, felt drawn to watch horror movies, but they're incredibly popular. Uh, but yeah, to an extent, the news, but there's always a spin put on the news. I think just knowing that it's happening and dedicating, dedicating merit, dedicating the, any acts of goodness we've done in our lives to, any anybody on any side of any of these wars who's being harmed especially innocent people who are and then there might be like well you know none of them are innocent they're all bad you know like question that type of mind that is saying like oh well one side is right one side is wrong and uh just seeing people as people that we want i know there's like something that's not in the news that I thought about a lot recently because it's a Buddhist country is Burma. And so I, I had the opportunity to go to Burma and now they're, they're 
either on the brink or in civil war. It's hard to find information about it, but um, because it's a Buddhist country, I've, I've thought about it quite a bit. And there's more monks in Burma than there is in Thailand. So it, uh, it really does have an effect on Buddhism as a whole. And, uh, but it's not sure exactly what's happening or the nature of what's happening, but I did go there, um, went there, uh, late June to mid July this year and, uh, was able to meet people and practice there and, uh, go to Shwedagong Pagoda, which is, um, the largest, one of the largest, if not, I think it's the largest chedi in the world and, uh, was able to practice there and meet different Burmese people. Me and the me and Ajanachalo were the two monks, two Western monks there. There's almost, almost no other Westerners there. And just uh, dedicating merit to the Burmese people in, in any way we can. And uh, that's about all we can do. I've thought about it too. Like, well, the Buddha, why didn't the Buddha when there was wars in his time, why didn't he use his psychic powers to, you know, fly in and stop the conflict or something. And that's when you come back to the reflection on karma. So, uh, uh, the Sakyan people were about to have a huge war. So the Buddha's own people were about to have a huge war with the neighboring state and uh, one of the neighboring states. And it was over water rights and the Buddha, they were coming to the Buddha for advice, both sides. And he said, well, if you if you engage in this conflict, the water will flow red and nobody will benefit from it. And they still engaged in the conflict. And that was the end of the Sakyan people. And he didn't, all he did was say, this is what's going to happen if you do that. So he's talking about cause and effect, but he didn't go in and physically try to stop it. And um, it is a really interesting uh, lesson, I think, from the Buddha that, you know, there's not really much we can do except say, well, if you do this, then this is going to happen. But then uh, the world is a crazy place. So, yeah, I think, uh, I don't think you're necessarily st sticking your head in the sand if you don't watch like the murder shows and stuff. Uh, um, but uh, I think it's good to have a a basic idea of what's happening, but also reminding oneself that it is the nature of the world. Like there's, there's a lot of stuff happening right now in the world. That's not in the news cycle. Some of it could even be worse than what's in the news cycle, like Venezuela, for example, Nicaragua, you don't see anything about them, but I only know about them because I have, I know people who are in those places who have like, uh, you know, it's, it's super, super bad. Opposite with you should be warned that images you're going to see could be disturbing. And right. they are. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I'm going to keep watching then. Okay. Yeah. We have to be careful of that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we just want to try to put, put as much good energy out there as we can. Yeah. To, that's, the, I think, in from my perspective, that's the way to tip the scales is just to have as much energy that's the opposite of that as we can. That takes mind training to train our minds to be able to do that.
Maybe one more question before we meditate a little bit more. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, when you were giving the reflection on um, the five precepts and the reflection you gave on intoxicants, um, it brought up for me the relationship I have with my phone, my computer. I don't have a relationship with intoxicants right now, but that seems to be drawing me into heedlessness in similar ways. So I was wondering if you had any uh, advice on words of that. Yes, throw it away. But then I would have to then I would have to throw away mine also. Uh, it's, it's good to reflect on it in that way. I reflect on the phone more like an addiction or a habit. And, um, you know, I suppose you could see it as an intoxicant, but currently the way we view the role, we haven't included phones or computers in the intoxicant role. Uh, but it is good, a good reflection. You know, some people, sometimes people ask about coffee. Isn't coffee an intoxicant? So because I drink coffee, I don't, Think it's an intoxicant or tea but uh we thought think more about things that when you ingest them it's actually puts you into a state where it's going to be hard to know what's what and uh not exactly like if you so things that are clear intoxicants would be like uh you know drinking alcohol smoking marijuana taking lsd things like that are very clear things that alter the mind um, as to, you know, well, what about a glass of wine with dinner? That's, that's, uh, we just, we won't, we can't do that in our particular rules, but, uh, you know, everybody has to come up with their own standards in the end. We, uh, in the, the Buddha standard with alcohol is because alcohol, uh, the Buddha talks about it as even if you don't get drunk from it, it's, uh, it's still kind of it can be a slippery slope. Like you could start with just a little bit and then it can get more and more and more. So that's why the Buddha says, don't take any more than what can fit on the tip of a blade of grass. But uh, um, yeah, I think it's, it's good to reflect on the phone is a, is a big danger and there's, it's a gateway to the world. So uh, we have more connectivity than we've ever had before right now. So just to be, really careful with how much we use it and how we're using it. If we're using it to listen to Dhamma talks or to join in with a meditation day-long retreat, that's a wholesome use of it. But if we're using it to get really involved in something that's going to embroil us in some sort of negative, in some sort of negativity or negative interactions with other people, something like that, then we have to just be very careful of that. Like, how are we using it? Is it more for practical stuff or is it purely for kind of entertainment and and uh, tending towards the unwholesome. So it's good to make it conscious. Sounds like you've already made it conscious. It's good to reflect on it that way. Yeah, I've had to deal with the same, same type of thing. Using the phone, it's really useful for contacting people, organizing rides, uh, all sorts of stuff like that. But then there's this whole other side to it. So I feel like it pulls me in don't have the same mindfulness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that.